thank you for being with us this morning. Um, it's so great to be here. If you've been with us, we just finished Romans chapter 2 last week. We've been going through our expositional study of Paul's letter to the church in Rome. And so we will cover all of chapter 3 this week. I know that sounds like a lot. It looks like a lot. I promise it won't be too much. We're kind of getting, um, starting to get into the meat of what Paul is saying now. And so um, I think it'll kind of go a little bit smoother. It'll be a little bit um, maybe easier to understand. Won't take maybe as much explanation. Um, but we are also to the point where we'll probably need to start reviewing um, every week what we've went through just because keep in mind this was one letter. Um, Paul wrote it to be read at one time. Imagine if someone wrote you a letter and you read it one paragraph a week. Um, that's fine for what we're doing right now, studying it. We couldn't study all of it in one day. Um, but that just means that we'll need to refresh our memory sometimes. And so um, in the beginning of Romans, Paul kind of sets the context at first, who he's writing to, why he's writing. And then he says that he is a servant set apart for the gospel of God. And he talks about how serious of a charge this was, that he is under obligation to preach this gospel, both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. And then he says in chapter 1, verse 16 and 17, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So kind of the two key words in those two verses right there are salvation and faith. And so he goes on in the rest of chapter 1 and then in chapter 2, to explain this salvation. And we've said this before, but if someone is offering you salvation and you need salvation, there is something that you are in danger of or um, there's, there's a, a certain thing that you need to be saved from. And so Paul goes on to talk about that and talk about our sin that makes us necessary. And he explains who is in need of that salvation. And we finished up last week by understanding that we all are in need of that salvation. Even we as God's people who have his promises um, are still by the law under his condemnation. And so that should lead us to the natural question, okay, so if we're under the same condemnation as everyone else, is there any advantage to being God's chosen people? And so that's where we'll start. And so I'll read all of chapter three right here, and then we will pray over it quickly again, and then we will go through it verse by verse. Romans chapter three, verse one. Then what advantage has the Jew or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true though everyone were a liar as it is written that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath upon us? I speak in a human way. By no means, for then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. What then? Are we Jews any better off? 
No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is, is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now the, righteous of God has been man- the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith, apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God, the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one who would justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised by faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Let's pray. Father, again, thank you for your word. Thank you for the truth and the life that it speaks to us. I pray this morning that you would protect it, that you would make sure it is honored and that you are glorified through its preaching, that there would be nothing that is untrue or misleading that is said. And I pray that you would hold me and you would hold all of us listening accountable to the truth of your word, that we may grow in unity with you. We pray these things in your name. Amen. So we start off in in verse one and he, like we said, he asked the natural question that what advantage has the Jew or what is the value of circumcision? Because the end of chapter two, we talked about how many of the Jews thought that they were completely justified simply because they were circumcised. And Paul threw that idea out. And so that he asked that question, what advantage has the Jew? What is the value of circumcision? And he says, much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. This is something we talked about last week. There were certain privileges that the children of God have Um, simply because of God's promises and his commitment to them. And one of those was having his word at their disposal, not only having it on their hearts, but just having the written word. And he says that that is a great advantage. But then he asks another question and he's kind of covering questions that um, those who were confused or even those who were opposed to him probably would have asked to try to kind of poke holes in, in what he was saying. He says in verse three, what if some were unfaithful? 
Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. So if, if you will think back to Genesis 15 that we talked about at the very end of last week, which is God's covenant with Abraham, he's about to make this covenant. He has Abraham um, set it up as they would kind of set up that ritual of making a covenant. And then he actually puts Abraham into a deep sleep. This was to prevent Abraham from fulfilling his half of the covenant because now that covenant is what is called a unilateral covenant meaning that no matter what Abraham or his descendants do, they cannot either uphold the covenant or break the covenant. They cannot make it void. It is fully on the shoulders of God. And so because of that, we see that the faithlessness of man, of, of even God's children, does not make void, it does not nullify the faithfulness of God. But... Our nature and the nature of others really likes to use that against us. The, the most difficult thing about evangelizing is when you're talking to someone, or the, the most difficult thing I think about being a Christian is evangelizing because when you're talking to someone and you're, maybe they're talking to you about their problems or their life or you're just talking about anything and then you try to bring up God or your relationship with God one of the first responses you'll get is, well, what about that time you fill in the blank? Or what about that time in history when Christians fill in the blank? People love to bring up the Crusades, right? Okay, and I, that, that was wrong. We sin. God's children have always sinned. You can read the Old Testament. That's very evident. But it, it doesn't mean that because we are not faithful, therefore God is not faithful. Just because we sin and fall short doesn't mean he does. He is still righteous even when we are unrighteous. He is faithful when we are faithless. And then he goes on to this next question. And he says, but if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? that God is unrighteous to inflict wrath upon us? I speak in a human way. By no means, for then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come, as some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. So now the, the question that he's addressing is kind of addressing this idea that, that some people had that he was teaching the concept of cheap grace, which is essentially the idea that you can do anything you want and God has to show you grace. He has to forgive you because he's promised you he will. But they've even taken it a step further and they're saying not only that, but we should actually do unrighteous things because God will then swoop in and save the day and show his righteousness. And so us being unrighteous is now putting on display the righteousness of God. So not only should we do those things, but if that's the case, he is unrighteous to inflict wrath upon us. And he says that, he says, I speak in a human way, meaning, okay, I'm kind of bringing it down to your terms now. I'm kind of dealing with your argument, even though it's nonsense. And he says, that's not true at all. If that were true, then you have no reason to fear God in any way. He can't judge the world. He's not God. 
He's not righteous if he lets unrighteousness go unpunished. But then he continues to deal with it. He says, but if through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, and he kind of, he kind of says, I'm not even dealing with this. You know better. He says, their condemnation is just. And so he goes on and in verse nine, he says, what then are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all both Jews and Greeks are under sin. So this sounds pretty much like the same question that he asks in verse one, where he says, then what advantage has the Jew? But it's two different questions. When he asks what advantage has the Jew, I I think that's pretty straightforward. You know, how is it better for us to be God's people than, you know, not be God's people? What advantage does that have? And Paul explains that. But then it says, are Jews any better off? Meaning, are we better because we're God's people? And he says, no, you're not. We've already charged that all both Jews and Greeks are under sin. And then he goes in verses 10 through 18, and he compiles several Old Testament statements together. He says, as it is written, no, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. So this is kind of interesting because we read this and I don't think we usually notice, but if you look, there's a bunch of quotation marks in these passages, meaning these are actually from verses 10b through verse 18. These are six different Old Testament statements that he has kind of sandwiched together. And verses 10 through 12, where he says, none is righteous, no, not one, no one understands, no one seeks for God, all have turned aside, together they have become worthless, no one does good, not even one. This comes from Uh, Psalms 14 and 53, which were very similar psalms. They were probably actually the same hymn that was just repeated before they were put into the Psalter. But they were kind of the same hymn. And the Jews probably would have known this hymn or or kind of it, it would have jogged their memory because this hymn was actually, if you go and look, it was about how the worldly are not righteous, no, not one, no one's understands no one seeks for God. It was talking about the worldly and how because of that, God's children are persecuted. So the Jews probably would have known this statement, but now Paul is using it, talking about them as well. It probably would have been a little bit offensive because they would have heard this and been thinking about, you know, all the worldly people over there. And so there's kind of a pattern to the way that he puts these together. And I I love this. He talks in these first um, three verses, 10 through 12, about a sinful condition that all are in. But then uh, that kind of progresses. It doesn't just stay into a condition. It says in verse 13, their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Asp was a Egyptian cobra. It was very venomous. It would have been very um, lethal, very destructive. 
And it says their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. So first they're in this sinful condition, but now that sinful condition is coming out and notice the progression. It starts in their throat. Their throat is an open grave and then it goes to their tongue and then it goes to their lips and it comes out and it says their mouth is full of curses and bitterness, but then it doesn't even stop there. It goes to action. It says in verse 15, their feet are swift to shed blood in their paths are ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known. So it starts as a condition and then it comes out of their mouth and then it leads to action. It's this progression of how sin slowly takes us over. But then there's kind of the summary statement in verse 18. Why has all of this happened? There is no fear of God before their eyes. I've told my youth this before and I'll tell all of you, there has never been a sin from the garden until now, and there will never be one until Jesus comes back that did not come from a foundation, from a root of trying to elevate ourselves and therefore de-elevate God. Or another way to put that would be trying to promote ourselves and demote God. If you, you go and look in Genesis 3 in the fall and, and the serpent He's in the garden, he's talking to Eve, he asks her a question and he keeps talking to her, but the, the statement that got her hooked was this. The serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And what does it say? So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, it was a delight to the eyes and it was to be desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate and she also gave some to her husband who was with her. The serpent was trying to trick her and saying these things to her, but when he said, you will be like God, she was hooked. Every sin in your life, every sin in my life, every sin that ever takes place comes from an attempt to dethrone God and put ourselves in his place. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And then he goes into verse 19 and he says, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under it so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. Through the law comes knowledge of sin. This is actually, we're gonna go over this in a couple weeks, but in Romans 5, 20, uh, Romans 5 verse 28, it says, for the law came to increase trespass. What does that mean? Since the moment God gave his children the law, what they tried to do, what we try to do now is use it to perfect ourselves to be more like God so that we can be justified. But he says that's not what it's for. The law is a mirror that we are supposed to walk up to and we are supposed to see how dirty we are. We're supposed to see that there's holes in our clothes and we have stuff in our teeth and there's dirt in our face. We're supposed to see how wretched we look but we use it to try to perfect ourselves. So imagine walking up to the mirror and seeing that and then taking it off the wall and trying to floss your teeth with it. 
That's silly, I know. But it's the same thing with the law. It was not made so that we could look at it and go, okay, here's what I need to do to be good. It's made so that we look at it and go, I can't be good. I need someone else. And so he says, because of the law, every mouth is stopped and the whole world will be held accountable. All right, Paul, you're making us feel bad. Let's get to the good stuff. Verse 21, but now, I love it anywhere in scripture where it says that because it usually just gave us something like this where we feel terrible and then it swoops in with the hope and it says, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. It says by his grace as a gift. And I think I've said this before, but God's grace, when it says grace, grace means unmerited or unearned favor. Okay, that's what grace is. So when it says justified by his grace, by his unmerited favor as a gift, what that means is that it can't be earned. It's not deserved. We can't do anything to get it. It is a gift. We could never make enough of a payment through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. Propitiation is something that makes peace or appeases or satisfies. So when it says put forward as a propitiation by his blood, it means that his blood on the cross satisfied the wrath of God that we should have had to pay. We were deserving of paying, but instead his blood satisfied that wrath so that we are no longer under that judgment. And it says it is to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. What does that mean? The word kafar was the Hebrew word that we translated in English to mean atonement. The word atonement or, or the word kafar in the Hebrew originally was not a spiritual word, but it was used so much in scripture, it was actually used 103 times just in the Old Testament, that it came to mean the covering of our sins. But in the Greek, when it's translated over to the Greek, that Greek word is exiloskomai. Okay, so in, again, in, in the Greek version of the Old Testament, that word is there 103 times, but in the New Testament, that word doesn't appear one time. Why? In the Old Testament, they had the sacrifices that the priest had to make for the sins of the people. And they had certain animals under the Mosaic law that were to be in these sacrifices. There was rams, goats, lambs, sometimes even doves. There was, there was many different types of animals that depending on the type of sacrifice, they would sacrifice. What was special about the blood of those animals though? What had saving power in that blood? Nothing. 
That blood was not to forgive their sins. It was to cover their sins and to direct their focus and their attention towards the ultimate blood sacrifice that would do away with their sins. And so when the word exiloscomai, meaning atonement, never shows up in the New Testament, it is because our sins are not covered anymore because when Jesus died on the cross, he took the sins of past, present, and future, and he destroyed them. They have been done away with. They have no effect. They have no hold. Sins don't need to be covered anymore because they've been defeated. And so it says, in his divine forbearance, he passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? Is it excluded? It is excluded, I'm sorry. By what kind of law? By a law of works. No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Whereas God, the God of Jews only, is he not the God, the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. Since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised by faith. There's no requirements we can meet. You know, baptism for us is a sign of obedience to God but baptism doesn't justify us. Baptism doesn't save us. Coming to church doesn't save us. Helping the guy whose cars broke down on the side of the street is a wonderful thing that we should do, but it can't save us. Faith saves us. And then this last verse is the question that will lead us into next week. So remember this. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Do you know why it is so hard for people, sometimes even us, to grasp this idea of a 100% faith-based salvation? I think deep down it's because it scares us a little bit. Because... You know, Jonathan Edwards said that the only thing we contribute to our salvation is the sin that makes it necessary. And if that's true, if there's nothing else that we contribute, if, if we can't give God little nudges here and there to really help him out, and it's solely on him, if, if it's unconditional, that means our obedience has to be unconditional. It means we don't get to set the terms. It means we don't get to veto hardships or inconveniences. It means there's no exceptions that we can create. God's love and grace is not conditional and that tends to scare us sometimes, but it shouldn't because what that really means is that there's nothing we can do to mess it up. If we tried to be perfect, as we've all tried to do, what happens when you try to be perfect? Do you end up just messing it up worse than it was before? But when his love and his grace and his forgiveness is unconditional, when it is in no way affected by you and I, 
We don't set the terms. And I'll leave you with this. It's a, it's a quote by Tim Keller, a famous pastor. He's wrote many books. Some of you probably know him. He said, the great basis of the assurance of, Christ, of Christianity is not how much our hearts are set on God, but how unshakably his, hearts are set, his heart is set on us. You can't do it. You can't mess it up. You can't hold your salvation on your shoulders. God doesn't intend for you to. Put it on his.